This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, January 29th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Uh, for those two people who don't know, my name is Sam, and I have the joy of preaching here a lot. I um, got back, we were on mission in Chile uh, for a couple weeks, and um, it is now about 90 degrees down there, and it's probably fantastic, but um, we had a, a joyful time uh, down there. Uh, the most difficult thing, well, two things. One was the plane ride, which was like 20 plus hours uh, of just pure wonderfulness. And then um, there was the language barrier. So out of all the team, I was probably the worst. I just was horrible. So I made up my own language. I called it Samish, and, and I basically just added L at the front of every word and O at the end. So if I needed something, I'd say, give me El Buttero or whatever, and they would correct me, but they understood me. So I have now my own language that works across cultures, and I'm so happy about that. Um, but I did want to say that when we were gone, um, I was, um, I guess, very encouraged. Uh, number one, I just, I just love this church. Uh, I love what God has done and what God is doing, but it sounds like the last two weeks or the 10 days we're gone was, was pretty crazy, and um, that is um, um, to be expected, I guess, not because you know, I'm gone, just because uh, that's what happens in the life of, of a church, but I was so encouraged that I was off of Wi-Fi or internet, so I didn't have much. I'd pick up stuff a little bit, but um, just so encouraged as I learned about the church being the church, um, and watching and hearing about leaders leading and, and members leading and serving and people just coming together and saying, yeah, this is, this is our home and this is our family and we love it and we're going to protect one another. It's like, praise God that it's not polarized around one, two, or three people, but the church is us collectively, and I am uh, super encouraged by that. So thank you for just uh, being uh, what God has called you to be, which is a priesthood of believers, and um, it's pretty phenomenal. We're going to be in Genesis, um, and we're going to be in that for some time. Um, I wanted to uh, just begin by saying some texts and some sermons and even series uh, will often um, challenge us to change our actions. And then there are those texts and series that challenge us to change our attitudes. And I think that today's text, and then um, maybe the whole series is probably more of the latter, where we're going to be challenged in, in who we understand God to be and how we view even our lives and what's going on in this world. Now, Genesis 37 marks uh, the beginning of the end of the book of beginnings, um, the book of Genesis. And 37 uh, kind of marks the final chapter. You'll see it begins with, uh, which I'll read in a second, the generations of Jacob. Now, prior to that, there's been the generations of Abraham and generations of Esau and all these kind of sections in it. And usually after that statement, there's a list of people laying out the lineage and the history of all the people that came from those descendants with Noah and all these people. Um, but in this one, you will see that it's focused on one person. That only one person is listed in the generation of Jacob. And I think second only to the gospel to the story of Jesus that we find laid out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think second only to the Gospel, Genesis 37 through 50, which is the story we talk about, contains perhaps the most amazing story ever recorded. And it's the story of Joseph. Now, the story of Joseph takes up as much space as the one story of Abraham, who is and was the father of faith. It also um, takes up collectively what would be the history of his grandfather, Isaac, Joseph's grandfather, Isaac, uh, and his father, Jacob. So together, that equals as much as Joseph. Basically, it's about 14-ish chapters of space, representing about a quarter of the book of Genesis is devoted to the story of Joseph. And interestingly, we have more spoken words of Joseph than I believe any other Old Testament character. And yet, he is never once quoted in the New Testament. 
His name is actually only referenced four different times. His faith is referenced once, but he is never even hinted at by Jesus himself. And yet, there is probably no individual in the history of the world that parallels the life of Jesus more closely than Joseph. Joseph is an innocent man. He was loved deeply by his father. He was hated by his brothers. He was sold for silver, pretty much dead and buried. He was enslaved. He was punished, falsely accused, only to, in the end, rise as Lord and Savior of the known world. Sound familiar? But what makes the story so amazing, so incredible, one of the greatest stories ever told is not because of all the incredible goodness that Joseph eventually accomplishes. Rather, it's that none of the good would have happened had it not been for all the evil that did. That's the most amazing part of this story. And honestly, the most troubling part of the story. Now, I'm going to read Genesis 37, just the first 11 verses, to kind of set the stage for where this entire story goes. So, chapter 37, beginning in verse 1, says this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, who was Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to mine. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed going to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream, told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars, which I just happen to have eleven brothers, were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, and his father kept the saying in mind. This is God's Word. Now, the seemingly trivial details of those first 11 verses are going to lead to a lifetime of pain for this 17-year-old. The story of Joseph is really a story of suffering. Joseph endures much undeserved suffering. Things like he encounters envy and hatred from his brothers. He faces physical abuse. He endures false accusations. He has to resist sexual impurity. He experiences injustice. He has to plan for great adversity. He has to burden the mantle of leadership. And he battles resentment as he forgives those who hurt him and they question his integrity in doing so. Now, I'm sure that in our own lives, we fit somewhere in there. It's a life of suffering. (coughs) Now, Joseph's life is not merely a story full of pain and suffering. It's actually a story of tremendous triumph. 
His story is not just about suffering, it's about overcoming suffering. It's about enduring pain. It's about trusting God in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And what makes the story so incredible is that the suffering Joseph experiences is not the result of God's indifference or his absence. Rather, it proves in the end to be the very proof of his love and his presence. (coughs) Did you hear that? That's a very difficult statement. Because when we're in pain and we're going through difficult things, the very question that probably runs to our mind is, where's God? Listen to what I said. What makes the story so incredible is that the suffering Joseph experiences is not the result of God's indifference or absence. Rather, it proves in the end to be the very proof of His love and presence. Man, that's hard to believe sometimes. I'm not sure I always view my suffering that way. When things are hard, I'm not, to be honest, maybe the first or the quickest to say, God is here. God is here. Maybe to cry out, God be here. How about you? Any different? See, the small story of Joseph teaches us something that's very important. It's how to understand the larger story of God that we're all a part of. If we learn nothing else from this series, and it will be, honestly, a, a, an extended series about the difficulty in life, about suffering, something that we all either now are experiencing or will experience. And if coming away from the series, we can accomplish one thing, it's that God is big. God is great. God is much larger than you can possibly imagine. And it is in Him that we take our comfort and find our refuge. The short story of Joseph is going to challenge us to take the long view of life. And that's very difficult in a culture that asks us to take the short view of everything. The instant view. The quick view. But if we can take the long view of life, The story of Joseph is is going to challenge us to receive God's kingdom as it actually comes. We pray that prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Really? That's a dangerous prayer. It's a prayer that we're commanded to pray, instructed to pray like, your kingdom come, your will be done. Are you prepared to receive God's kingdom as it actually comes? And it's going to challenge us to trust that what others, whether it be people or principalities, right? People or or spirits. What they may mean for evil, God means for good. Now, throughout this story, full of pain and suffering, Another amazing fact is that there is never um, one bad thing reported about Joseph himself. From what we read, he never complains. He never despairs. He never bemoans his circumstances. He never accuses. He never compromises. He never loses faith. On the contrary, he always believes God is in control of all things, all the time. We're going to get a little theological. All things. All things. Two simple words that are said a lot in the Bible. Two simple words that are an umbrella for everything. So whatever that thing is that you're going to struggle with putting under that umbrella, be prepared. It needs to be shoved under there. I'm going to go through a series of verses to talk about this all things. And I'd encourage you to write down the references and listen to the Word of God. 
Because the Bible has a lot to say about God and all things. In fact, the Bible says that God is the one who creates and sustains and directs all things. So consider these passages. The first is Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. The Bible says that Jesus, this is a powerful passage about Jesus, that Jesus created all things and He holds all things together. Same thing is said in Hebrews 1.3, meaning He carries along all things. Colossians 1, verse 16 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I hope you caught the pattern in that passage. All things. In Ephesians 1, chapter 11, the Bible says that God wills all things in Jesus. It says, in Him, Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So He works all things according to His will in Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 27, that Jesus rules all things. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. We get to Romans chapter 11, verse 36, and the Bible continues to talk about Jesus, and it says that all things are from and all things are for Jesus. It says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. I'm seeing a theme here. And then we get to perhaps one of the most powerful, troubling, controversial, difficult, amazingly wonderful verses in Scripture. Romans 8.28 Says, for we know, right? We know that for those who love God, there's those two words, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So let me just summarize what all those verses said, and there are many more. Jesus creates all things. Jesus sustains all things. Jesus rules all things. Jesus works in all things. Jesus is glorified by all things. And Jesus purposes all things for good. But what about that one thing? I know all of our minds are going to that one thing. That one thing that you can't, I can't, you can't possibly mean that one thing. All things, in the Greek means all things, right? I don't know how to look it up. But I'm assuming, like we want to, we read so, such simple things in the Bible that are easy to understand, just so difficult to believe. The truth is, it's easy to believe all things are purposed for good, as Romans 8.28 says, when everything feels good. When it looks good, when I can understand, like I'm not confused by the goodness of that. I can imagine good even. Like when you're in that place, okay, Romans 8.28, praise God, right? But what about when you're not in that place and you don't understand and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't feel good, which if it hasn't happened yet, it will. That's life. But what the Bible's teaching us here is a, is a very powerful statement that, again, simple to understand, it's difficult to believe, that life is always good if God is always God. If He is truly the creator of all things, sustainer of all things, the governor of all things, the director of all things, in control of all things, never surprised by anything, Life is always good if God 
was always God. Because essentially God created all things and He keeps all things moving and functioning according as He designed them and moving in the way that He planned them. So that means, follow the logic, right? There, there are no quinky-dinks. There are no mere circumstances. There, there are no accidental situations, even if there are accidents. There are no random chances in all of creation. That's deep. Well, we're going deep. I know we're going to go deep. But I'm going to hold your head under the water a little bit longer. And I'll let you out for a second. Let, let this sit on your brain as much as it can. That a before the foundation of the world, before anything existed, your personality, your bodies, your families, was planned by God. The time in which you live, the place in which you dwell, the number of breaths and days you would have in this world, every aspect of your life has been directed by God. The Bible says, and I, again, could give you lots of references, but you're going to have to trust me and I'll post them later through the Psalms and elsewhere. But the Bible says that all success and all failure comes from Him. That all talents and abilities come from Him. That all leaders and governments come from Him. That all elections of all presidents and the birth of every child and the death of every person is in His hand. God directs the inanimate things, right? The weather, it rains because God says, rain. The world keeps rotating. The sun keeps coming up because God has said, let's keep going. Even for the animate things, animals continue to function the way that they were designed to function, which makes science possible. The Animals, and the bugs, and the birds are all fed. And the beauty is seen every spring because God has made it happen. God is involved in every aspect of our lives to the extent where He, Paul, can affirm what a human poet said in Acts 17. In Him, that being God, we live and move and have our being. God is big. God is great. And if we accomplish nothing, we ought to sit in awe of all that God does and is doing perpetually. I can barely, well, I should say, my wife can barely keep our home functioning with five children, and the Lord has the universe in His hands. Suffice to say, there is no event outside or in creation outside of God's sovereign involvement. And I know many of us go, well, that means that do our choices even matter? Yes. Our choices matter, our choices are real, and they have eternal consequences, but there is without doubt a tension there. And it's mysterious. And I can't fully explain it, but I'm resigned to leave it with God because he says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, there's a lot I've revealed, but there's a lot I've left a mystery. And I'm resigned to stick with what he's revealed. But we see that God is directing all things, influencing all things, and willing all things to bring about his plan. And your question, which is a fair one, what the snarf does that have to do with Joseph? Well, as we've been talking about all things and the all things that God directs and the all things that God influences, the all things that God is sovereignly involved in, the story of Joseph is full of a lot of bad things. So are evil things considered part of the all things that God's directing? I don't know how I feel about that. That's okay. Sit in that tension. Because if so, if, if, if God is also governing what, again, I will define as bad things, what looks bad, feels bad, seems bad, what does that say about God's relationship to evil? I mean, is, 
If he's, he's ordaining bad things, allowing bad things, like does that mean he's not loving? Well, maybe he's loving, like, okay, so if bad things still happen and he's loving, maybe he's just not strong enough to stop them. These are good questions. And the story of Joseph answers them all. The Bible says that God does not cause evil. He does not directly do evil. He does not take pleasure in evil. But the story of Joseph reveals a very powerful and mysterious truth that God does use evil to bring about good. At the end of his life, Joseph reflecting on his own life, which I think for many of us who've experienced painful, difficult things in our life, it takes some distance for us to be able to look and say, okay, I understand a little bit. He's not 17 when he's saying this. He's much older. He's been through a lot. But he famously declared at the end of this story to the very ones that are responsible for his painful journey, he says to them, God sent me into this pain to save you. And we want a different reaction from Joseph. Oh, come on. Be more angry. Be ticked. But he goes on further to say, what you meant for evil, guys, what you planned for evil, what you did, which was evil, God meant it for good. So he puts those on the, a, a comparison, right? Because in the same way, guys, you planned evil and you did evil, God's plan was to take that evil and do good. Now, as we looked at these first 11 verses, though, there's some things that, that happen. Like there's some choices that people make that seem to explain why the evil happened, right? You can imagine it made Joseph going back like, hmm, I know why this happened. Because it's very difficult for us, or maybe we're slow to get to a place where like, God meant this for good. I don't think that's an overnight thing. I think when people are in the midst of suffering to throw out, hey, Romans 8.28, come on, praise God. Praise God for your pain. Like, no, don't be an idiot. Okay? There's a time and a place for, for that truth to come out, but there's also a time and a place to grieve. Let us not forget that Jesus wept as Lazarus in the tomb knowing He's going to raise Him from the dead. So there's pain. There's grief. There's sadness. And we need to sit in that. And we're really bad at that. Because we want to like get all theological. Like We can be theological and be sad and grieve. But there's some things that happen that I want to break down in this passage. And so, to maybe think about what, what Joseph is going through and maybe what we go through. So the actual choices that are made that create this environment. First thing, Joseph gives a report. Right? He reports on his brothers and he'll do this more than once. Joseph is given a special assignment. It's not just, he's not just a tattletale. He's not just like, hey, hey, Dad, you know what's going on? Like, his dad tells him, I want you to go report. Like, tell me what your brothers are doing. Why? His dad doesn't trust his brothers. His brothers have already proved violent and unfaithful. And so he's like, hey, Joseph, I want you to go find out what they're doing. Joseph is the faithful one. Joseph is the truthful one. Joseph is the trustworthy one. And Joseph obeys and does what is right and reports just what he sees. This is what's going on. This is what they're doing. And he's hated for it. I'm reminded of when Moses went before Pharaoh and God says, I want you to go before Pharaoh, which he argued about it, right? But I want you to go before Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to let my people go. Okay. So he goes before Pharaoh and he says, um, God said, who's this God? Yahweh. I don't know Yahweh. I know he's the only God. But God said, let my people go. Really? I'm going to work your people twice as hard now. What? And then he walks out and the Israelites are being worked with. Like, what did you say to him? 
I just, I, 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 I just told him what God told me to say. Great. Like, doing what's right and it goes bad. And what do you start to do? Like, oh, gosh, I must have said the wrong thing. Nope, he said the right thing. He said exactly, he did exactly what God told him to, and it went bad. We, we lie to ourselves, believe, I'm going to do exactly what's right, and things are going to go wonderfully. No, they're going to go the way the Lord wants them to go. Oh, that's too deep. I know. We'll put that on the shelf for a second. But that's not the only reason he's hated, right? His bad report. Jacob, dad, gives him a coat. Really nice coat. You would think Jacob would know better because Jacob grew up in a family of favoritism. Mom loved Jacob, dad loved his brother Esau, and it caused all kinds of conflict, but we see that Joseph did not, or Jacob did not learn, and he favors his son Joseph. And it makes sense why, in a, in a weird sort of way. He loved Rachel. Rachel is the woman that he fell in love with. Rachel's the woman he worked many years for, and then Sister Leah was snuck in there, so he worked longer for Rachel. He loved Rachel. He was captivated by Rachel. And Joseph is Rachel's first son. And Rachel's dead. So he probably sees Rachel and Joseph. Loves Joseph so much so, he gives him a coat of many colors. And Jacob wears that coat. You can imagine him. Get this coat, right? And he actually he never brags. But he's wearing it. It's beautiful. Who knows what it looks like? Some colorful thing. It doesn't really matter. It's more so what it represents. And what it represents is that Joseph, out of the 11, 12 sons actually they have, he's the functional firstborn. He is the chosen one. He is likely the one who will get the inheritance. He is the one whom Jacob loves most. And his brothers hate him for it. But he didn't ask for the coat. He didn't go to his father and say, hey, you know, I'm 17. I'm kind of wearing the same rags I was wearing when I was 13. Hey, what do you say you make me a nice coat? Hmm, something nice? He didn't say that. He didn't ask for it. He didn't say, hey, thanks for the coat. Um, I'm my brothers get one too. No. Just received the gift and then was hated for it. Dad gave him a coat. But then you have God doing something, right? God gave him some dreams. Joseph receives, like his father before him, some special revelation from God in the form of dreams. And his dreams are a little more symbolic than just directly stated. But he's very eager to share his dreams. So, has a dream, goes to his brothers. Hey guys, I had a dream last night. Great, I had a dream. What did you dream about? Well, we're out in the field and our sheaves are there, like these big bundles of wheat. And mine stands up and yours all bow down to me. Isn't that rad? And they're like, so we're going to like worship you now? Like, what? Like, we hate you. Okay? So they hate him. So, he's like, whatever. Okay. Right? Goes to bed. Has another dream. This time, sun and moon and stars. And 11 stars. Right? 11 brothers. So, Hey guys, I had another dream. Really? What's the dream? Well, the sun and moon and stars are there and like you're all worshiping me. Yeah, we hate you. And even dad's like, what are you talking about? Like, clam up, man. But then dad kept it in the back of his mind. So Joseph didn't ask for these dreams. He didn't necessarily want these dreams, but he got them. And then he shared them. So now, none of these things, right, the, the reports and the dream sharing and, and God giving it and, and the coat, like none of these things are inherently evil, but what happens is they set the stage for evil. And it's interesting when we find ourselves in circumstances that are unexpected or undesirable, we are very apt to evaluate how we got there. Okay, how did I get into this situation? We start looking back at people and things to find something to blame. I need a reason. What caused me to be here? And you start evaluating. And essentially, we convince ourselves that the bad 
that I find myself in, this it was an accident. This was avoidable. Things are not supposed to be this way. And in pride, we start to imagine different scenarios that we are convinced would have created better circumstances. So I don't think Joseph did this, but he would be very normal if he did. I know I've done this. When I find myself in a situation, I go, mm, wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that. And it somehow makes me feel good that I have something to blame. Consider, though, the things that, that we can blame that Joseph could have blamed, right? If my father had not given me the coat, I didn't ask for the coat, but they hated me because I'm wearing around some coat. And really what you're talking about is like the choices of those other people, the choices of that guy, the choices of that girl. If they wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't be here. Man, if they would have done something different, they wouldn't have given that to me, done that to me, said that, acted like that, whatever, I wouldn't be here. And so you point out. And sometimes you can point in. Maybe Jacob's like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said anything. Wish I would have just came with a good report. Nah, they're fine, Dad. Wish I would have just lied about it. Or I wish I wouldn't have shared the dreams, right? I mean, the first one, I didn't know the reaction, but the second one, like, hmm, that wasn't received very well. Maybe I had another dream. No big deal. Uh, you guys all stood up too. You know, whatever. But maybe he's thinking about his own choices. Well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't be here. But I think some of the maybe darker blame games we play are the ones where we start to point at God. And maybe Joseph's like, well, I wouldn't have got a dream in the first place. If God wouldn't have brought this into my life. He wouldn't have said this to me. Have you ever done any of that? Because I know I have. Where you imagine things could have been better if different choices had been made. But I have a question for you. Who determines better? Who decides what's better? That's a dangerous game to play. It's a prideful game to play. All of those efforts to find something amounts to an effort to understand why am I suffering the way I am because I don't think I should be. Surely this is a mistake. Surely the suffering that I'm in right now is meaningless. It can't possibly be part of a plan. And as I said, if it's not meaningless, they go, oh, it's meaningful. And I think it means that there's something wrong about who God is. I mean, I'm sure you've never said this or heard this said. A loving God would never let this happen. A loving God would never let this happen. So that means he's, he's probably evil, which sounds really similar to Genesis chapter 3 when the enemy comes and says, oh, he's lying to you. And to call God a liar is to call God evil. Well, perhaps he's loving though. Okay, well, I'll just, no, nope. He's loving. He's loving. Maybe he's just not strong enough, powerful enough to stop some things. Maybe he's a weakling. Maybe he's just a man. And that's why I can be like him if I want. Which again, sounds like Genesis 3. But what if, what if God is as perfectly loving as we desire and as perfectly powerful as we hope? Then is there a purpose to bad? Is there some meaning behind it for Joseph and then for me? Paul tells us, yes. And he tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, as well as in Romans 8, 29, which is the verse after 28, which we should be apt to read. He says this in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, about the purpose of all things, even the bad. He said, 
We are blessed by God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has blessed us with in the Beloved. All things, and I mean all things, yes, even that thing, all things are purposed to lead us to Christ. All things are purposed to display and magnify and otherwise praise the glorious grace of Jesus Christ and Romans 8.29 would say, and to conform us more to His image. That is the purpose of all things. Now, the story of Joseph and all of the suffering therein is designed by God to bring about the plan of redemption. It is in a very real way the setting for the Gospel, the movement of His people in a direction that comes to full fruition in the future. It is, if you will, not just the setting of the Gospel, it is the suffering that leads to salvation. It is the death that leads to resurrection, a concept that characterizes a lot of life. The plan of redemption, as we know, came to climax on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the cross of Christ reveals much more than just, hey, we're saved. That's awesome. But we have to go deeper. The cross of Christ reveals God's relationship to bad things. His relationship to what we would consider evil. Because the crucifixion of the Son of God, what Colossians 1 calls the Creator, The crucifixion, the murder of the Creator by His own creation is the most evil thing that has and will ever occur in this world. It is beyond bad. It is the bad, bad of bad. It is the most evil thing in the history of the world. And it was brought about by the evil choices of many men and many people. And yet... The Bible tells us it was directed by the hand of God every step of the way. More than anything, the cross shows us that suffering, pain, difficulty has meaning. Even if it never answers every why question we have, it does reveal that it's not because God's not loving or that God's not strong enough to stop it. See, God on the cross is not separated from suffering. It reveals, as we see in the story of Joseph, suffering and pain of the cross is not a sign of His absence or His indifference. It's the very sign of His presence and His love. I'll give you two verses that we're apt to read over because it's part of a narrative, but if you stop and really settle on the words in there, it's going to trouble you, but I pray in time, comfort you. Acts 2, verse 22, and Acts 4, verse 27. Hear what they say. It's really the first two sermons of Peter. The second one might not be a sermon. The first one is for sure. Here's what he says in proclaiming to large crowds in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear that? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. That tension between the choices they made and God's definite plan The crucifixion of Christ was not some tragic accident. It was not some coincidental thing. It was directed by the hand of God. He was involved every step of the way. And if the worst thing that ever happened in the world was governed by the sovereignty of God, how much more those things that happened in our life that we consider bad. And please hear me, as we sit on this kind of theological truth that is to say that we should not grieve, we should not be sad, but it should be through a filter of hope. Acts chapter 4 verse 27 says the same thing. He says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod. Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, action word, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I, I, wow. So let me just tie this up. See, the hardest part is not believing that God is in control of evil. I think the most difficult part for us, if, if we're honest, is believing that whatever evil comes to pass, God actually means it for good in an intentional way. And we will, in this series and in all of life, we will struggle as we continue to understand how this, right? Fill in the blank. Fill in your painful experience here. How could that How could that horrible thing, this painful thing, this difficult thing, how could that possibly be good? Oh, that hurts. It doesn't make sense. It's not what I wanted. Well, the Bible doesn't say that all things are good. Don't misunderstand me. The Bible says that all things, even the bad, are purposed for good. Meaning the purpose itself is good. And that all things, good, bad, and ugly, fall into line to accomplish that one good purpose. That means that in Christ, your past, and your present, and even your future suffering although difficult, although grievous, although something for all of us to help burden, is not out of God's control. It is not out of God's plan. And it is definitely not meaningless. We may never see the full meaning of it. I think sometimes we lie to ourselves and we're like, you know what? This bad thing happened. But if I could know that 17 people came to Jesus then I'll be okay with it. Oh, come on. Maybe in your holiest of moments you believe that, but I'm convinced if God came down in your midst of pain and said, let me tell you all the awesome things that happened because of this, it would help, but I don't think it would remove that sadness completely in that moment. It would bring, give you hope to get through it, comfort to get through it, peace to get through it. The cross is where we find our hope and we find our comfort and we find deep roots. And let that be the proof to you that God is purposing all things for His glory and our good according to His perfect will and definition. The question is, are you prepared to believe that? Are you prepared to believe that is true even when you don't get to see it? Even when you don't fully understand it? Even when you don't feel it, are you willing to take the long view like Joseph did, who I'm convinced when he's in his prison cell, 
is wondering maybe, are you willing to take the long view past the prison cell? The long view of God is doing something that I may never fully realize, but there'll be one day when I'm in his presence where I will. One day where I sit with him and I understand all things and I am convinced that if I understood everything God knows this moment, I would want it to go the same way. Oh, that's too big. Are you willing to receive God's kingdom as it comes? And for the Lord who giveth and the Lord who taketh away, are you willing to say, blessed be the name of the Lord? And to trust, to hope beyond hope that what is meant for evil by those around us or just the brokenness of this world, God means for our good. Because if God is involved, if He is involved in all things, aren't you exactly where God wanted you right now to accomplish His purpose? And for those of us who are sitting in pain right now and suffering right now, that might be hard for us to believe or you to believe. But that's why we have the church here, because guess what? We are to weep together, and we are to rejoice together, and we are to constantly remind each other of what is true. And sometimes as we come in, we don't know where everyone's at, and sometimes we know exactly where they're at. And sometimes we're in the midst of not even being able to sing those songs because I'm struggling believing that's true. You know what I need? Someone else to sing them over me. Someone else is sing them next to me. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you come up for communion this Sunday, where we celebrate and we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us, know that this is the moment for you not to come up and say, I fully understand all the good things that are happening in the bad, cruddy situation I'm in. It's actually a place where you have the freedom to confess you don't understand and you don't like and it hurts but to say I'm going to trust as I grieve as I hurt as I get through it I'm going to trust because the cross shows me God that you were loving and you are loving and you are strong enough so I'm going to believe and that will get me through let's pray